Hey friend, thanks for listening to the Fixate Phoenix podcast. We are praying that you are blessed by this week's message. If you would like to partner with the future of Fixate, you can visit fixatephx.com slash give. The story of Jesus, the Messiah, and the gospel that we believe here, we don't take lightly the fact that for some reason, in some way, it has stood the test of time. That before there was printing presses and social media, before there was newspapers and all of the things that can make things continue to go, for some reason, this name Jesus and these 12 disciples were still talking about. And God, we thank you that your gospel has transcended time, it's transcended season. And with no power and no political power, no wealth and no weapons, it for some reason has lasted longer than government structure and lifespan. It is truly a miracle that we're still talking about it, and it's a miracle that it's worth devoting our life to. God, today, we're present to be formed by you and to follow you. We love you and we praise you in Jesus' name. And the church said, amen. Amen. We've been in a series on James. Uh, This is actually going to be part six of James. If you've not been here, um, I want to encourage you, you can go back and listen um, to the first five parts. What we really try to do is take 10 verses every week, 10 to 12, spend all our time on those, and then the next week we just go to the next 10. So um, a lot of backstory about James, and I try, I'm going to try because I reference this every week. I'll try to keep it as, brevi- as abbreviated as possible, but James is my favorite book of the Bible. Um, Jesus is half-brother. Not only is he his half-brother, but what we know is he grew up a skeptic of Jesus. He grows up a skeptic, then his brother dies and is resurrected, and he becomes a believer. In becoming a believer, he becomes a central figure in the church of Jerusalem, which is the very first church that ever was following the practices of Jesus and his lifestyle. At that time, we know that Christian wasn't a term that was around, as that term shows up later at the church of Antioch. Literally, this is the first church, and what we see over time is James becomes the central pastor of this church, and he is Jesus' half-brother. Now, many of us would connect these dots and say, okay, man, he must have had just a glorious life of just convenience and comfort as his spiritual maturity grew. But that's not the case. James's life was both a roller coaster of the up and also extremely low downs. What do I mean by this? You see that he is a part of the Acts 2 you know, in our terms, revival, where the spirit is, is poured out and thousands are added to the kingdom. And as this continues to go and the church explodes and expands, there happens where it kind of starts to go on a downturn. The downturn being persecution breaking out, the downturn being famine breaking out to the point where James is literally preaching sermons to his church that's starving to death. An offering is taken all over to, to kind of help the church in Jerusalem be able to even pay or, or be able to buy food to feed their congregation, culminating with more persecution that guess what happens? James is martyred and loses his life. The trajectory was not this, it was really this. And that's why I love this story because in my opinion, James is an incredible example of what I believe the next 10 years of expression of faith is gonna look like resilient disciples 
People who can go through the seasons, the ups, the downs, the in-betweens, the unmet expectation or the pain of loss and consistently stay faithful and disciples, people who are rhythmically and have habits and a lifestyle that revolves around the person of Jesus. So as we study James today, I've taught, we're going to be focused on James 2, 14 through verse 26. And not to ruin it before we start, but the famous passage, faith without works is dead. And so that comes from this passage, but the title I've given today is this, upping the ante and toll booths. Upping the ante and toll booths. Many of us have heard the term up the ante. Actually, believe it or not, it's first found in newspaper titles in the 1820s, 30s, and 40s, in which card games, it was an expression around the poker table, in which a stake of money was placed in a pool by each player before drawing cards. So essentially, bets were made on the belief that the cards that would be dealt and the cards that they possessed ultimately would be worth a a pot of winnings. So to up the ante was essentially the belief that the cards you had would ultimately lead to a reward on the cards that would be laid down on the table. Ante is a a Latin word, and it actually is the Latin word for before, essentially pointing to the aspect that you would make this bet before the cards were dealt in the belief that what would be dealt would be worth the cost you paid. What I, the reason I call it this, and I'll talk about toll, toll booths at the end. The reason I call it this is because James's letter in this particular passage to me is all about him upping the ante of the church in that day. He's writing this letter and saying, listen, you guys have functioned in this place of having faith, having faith, having faith, having faith. But I want to see works now. And so when we talk about upping the ante today, we talk about it from the place of he's essentially saying, I want to increase the cost, increase the risk. And in doing so, believe that when we do that, there's a reward for it. So with that, James 2, 14 through 26. And per my usual reading, we're going to stop and start like a wooden roller coaster. So here we go. What use is it, my brethren, if someone says he has faith, but he has no works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, and yet you do not give them what is necessary for their body, what use is that? Even so, faith, if it has no works, is dead, being by itself. This is a debatable topic. Why? Because what we find in the early church is this. If you have faith, you have everything. And this is what's interesting is, is, is the, the conundrum is this. James doesn't say, he's saying faith without works is dead. But what's hard is, is Jesus preaches this gospel of which just have faith in me. But then there's this shift of, okay, what, what's the line between faith and works? What's the line between relationship and religion? What's the line between a weighty expectation, but also a, a lifestyle of being in the Godhead? And you know what's interesting is I feel like James essentially says faith is enough, but it's not. And I think this is the place we have to start before we start getting into some of these examples. Is he's essentially saying, hey, guess what? Faith is enough. 
but also not really. And it's an interesting place to start for James as the author of this text, because once again, all the church of Jerusalem has heard is have faith in Jesus, have faith in Jesus, have faith in Jesus, have faith in Jesus, have faith in Jesus. Jesus." And actually, if you study the historical context of what's going on, most people had sold everything, moved in community together, and were awaiting the return of God. And guess what had happened? The return didn't happen. So everybody's waiting around in faith that, oh, God will be back any day, any hour, any moment, any second, any breath. But he's not showing up. So what's happening is everybody's like looking and waiting and trying to figure out, wondering what's going on. And guess what James is saying? Hey, guys, we can have faith that Jesus is coming, but there are works to be done until he comes. What am I saying to you? See, we all have faith that Jesus did sacrifice his life for our sins, but there are works required to develop a relationship of proximity to where we don't just know the one who purchased our sin on the cross, but the one who purchased a life alongside ours. Let's continue reading. It says this. But someone may well say, verse 18, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without the works, and I will show you my faith by my works. Verse 19, you believe that God is one. You do well, for the demons also believe and shudder. Verse 20, but are you willing to recognize, you foolish fellows, that faith without works is useless? James pivots from this particular start into three examples, and we're going to break down all three. I think it's hilarious, his examples. Why? Because this one is essentially, hey guys, just so you know, demons believe, and he adds that kind of picture and shudder at the name of Jesus, which is what we all do. We believe in the name and we revere it and view it as holy, but what differentiates you between a demon is what you do with it. Isn't that interesting, right? If I stood up here and I go, all right, guys, how many of you guys have had faith this week like the demons do? (laughs) And the question, and, and really it's an important thought he brings up is he says, listen, the only difference between you and Satan is what you do with what you know. It's an interesting place to start the congregation with on a Sunday. Like, hey, guys, you got a lot in common with Satan, you know that? (laughs) What are you doing with what you know. Because the fallen ones all know and believe, but what differentiates you between them is the works that you do. Second example, let's jump into it. It says this, verse 21, was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up Isaac, his son, on the altar? You see that faith was working with his works, and as a result of the works, faith was perfected. I love this. We see a recipe here. Faith works perfected faith. Now, here's what's interesting, though. See, Abraham, everybody knows about Abraham. Now, what people major on with Abraham is this. The passage with Abraham in Genesis in which God says, Hey, I want you to leave the land of your fathers and go to a place I'll show you. See, we can all relate with that, right? Where it's like, okay, have faith that as you leave and step out in faith, God is going to take you to a place in which ultimately he will show you and it's a promised land and it's incredible. But no offense, nobody references this one. Why? Because it's child sacrifice and it's weird. 
Like James is like, all right, guys, I want you to follow Abraham's example. They're all sitting there like, man, I know I can. Like, I'll leave anything for God. He's like, all right, go grab your kids. Some of you guys are like, you know, that's not serious. Yeah, it's not serious. But the picture he's painting is like, why, why couldn't you use the other one? Like, just leave your land and bring your flocks and animals and go to the land I'm going to show you. Not the one where it's like, oh, put your kid on an altar and grab a knife. See, these are the images he's painting. And what we're, what we're going to find out foundationally behind these images and these people is the cost associated with the devotion and the works. See, the the picture he's painting is not of be like Abraham. It's be willing to sacrifice like Abraham sacrificed. Not holding anything back. Giving your most valuable thing in your life and trusting that that in the hands of God is better than in the hands of you. Let's continue reading because there's a funnier example here. Verse 23, and the scripture was fulfilled, which says, and Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. And he was called friend of God. You see that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. In the same way was not Rahab the harlot. It's like, okay, where where are we at? Let's start with, you know, don't be like a demon, be a little bit better than a demon. Be like Abraham, be willing to sacrifice your child. And then if you want to be like a third one, there's a prostitute that did a really good job too. I mean, once again, James, it's like, James, why didn't you just like pick out, I don't know, Noah? Like, I mean, at this point, anybody besides a prostitute, a demon, and and somebody who's going to sacrifice their kid. And once again, what he's really introducing is this thought of withholding. In my opinion, when you look at these passages, the question is not, If you'll follow God, the question is, is if you'll give God everything and hold nothing back. Because these stories are people who their most valuable possession. You think of Rahab, all she'd ever known was Jericho. All she'd ever known was that city. And all of a sudden she just sacrifices it every, for every, everything she'd ever known for two random dudes from a tribe she'd never heard and a God that nobody had ever talked about. We don't talk about this enough. Of course Rahab is mentioned in scripture as having faith because the the children of Israel had never existed on the planet. There had been rumbles in Jericho of this new people out of Egypt that had overthrown stuff. But I mean, to be somebody who would put everything you'd ever known on the line for complete strangers and a God that you didn't even know? What's even more fascinating about the passage is if you know that God commands his children in the, in the wilderness to not allow intermarrying, to not allow any other tribe or any person outside of his children access into being a part of this holy nation. But Rahab, oh no, Rahab was allowed. Why? Because she paid a cost that others would not be willing to pay. Or should I say it like this? She withheld nothing. Let's continue reading. In the same way was not Rahab the harlot also justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? For just as the body without the spirit is dead, so also is faith without works dead. I say this to you today because I think for a lot of us, 
The question isn't if we have faith today. The question is if we understand how faith and works work together. And so today, that's what I'm going to try to do with my remaining time. Is talk, I want to talk about three thoughts on understanding the relationship between both faith and works. If you spend any amount of time here, you know we kind of have these missional values. Where our vision is to restore the gaze of humanity back to its creator and trust that the creator will create again. That when our eyes are on the creator, he creates now, how we do that, though, in, our, in like the context we're in is we believe in building a life of depth, discipline, sacrifice, and sustainability. A life of depth, a life of discipline that understands sacrifice and then that lives sustainably. And what I've be, I'll be honest, I'll repent on behalf of this church. A lot of the times, all we talk about is sacrifice. Works, 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 works. We never talk about, okay, how do I live a life of depth? How do I get more disciplined? So that I can understand sacrifice and then live sustainably. Or should I say it like this? We focus maybe on depth in the spirit, but we don't have disciplines of scripture and community and Sabbath and, 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 and caring and generosity and these different things. So depth and sacrifice we major on, but then because we have depth and sacrifice, but we don't understand self-discipline, we burn out. Or some of us, we have, we have disciplines, rigid disciplines, but not a depth of knowledge in the spirit and in love related to that. So we have discipline and we have sacrifice, which, which comes a religious spirit. What I introduce to you today is a life of depth, a life of discipline that understands sacrifice in a healthy way that then lives sustainably with God. And how do we do that, Right? How do we enter into this understanding? Is it's yes, we're talking a ton about the sacrifice aspect of works today, but that's not negating the depth and discipline needed to sustain sacrifice. So with that, let's jump into the first one. Three thoughts on understanding the relationship between faith and works. The first one, the mission field is your business field. Your daily work works and witness say more about who you serve than your Christian activities involvement. Faith and works is about the lifestyle you live and the lives it touches of those around you. Faith and works feel dead and dormant when they have not woven a level of calling into career. Inviting God into your daily work may do more for your works than you ever imagined. You know what's interesting about when it talks about faith and works not being dead and when it mentions works? Is that Greek term that in the New Testament, as the New Testament was written in, is the Greek word ergon. And it means business, employment, or that which one is occupied with. Isn't that interesting? Faith without works is dead. Faith without employment, or that which one is occupied with is dead. Think about the ramifications of that statement. Not only that, you want to know how many times work or works show up just in the New Testament? 169 times does this Greek word ergon show up just in the New Testament. You know what's also interesting, and I think that this is the element that I'm trying to get at as it pertains to you realizing that the compartmentalization of faith and your personal life that was never supposed to be there is man's original design. What do we see when Adam comes into the garden? Communing with God, but not just communing, commissioning to guard, to tend, and to keep. You know, God could have created Adam and said, hey, 
I've got a little temple over here. I just want you to 24-7 pray and worship in there and just walk around with me. It'll be fun. But what does God do? He creates Adam and says, I want to commune with you, but this is your job now. This is your work now. And I'll be with you in everything you do, but there will be doing. Isn't it interesting sometimes where we think that godly doing is Christian activities, church activities, and not work and life? Because that's the thing about God. He he doesn't pay for access in your life in what's convenient, comfortable, and hopefully can fit in the margins. He wants to marry career and calling. And what you might find in marrying career and calling is the fulfillment that all of us seek in following Jesus. See, that's what I want to offer you is that we don't follow God for what we can get in return. We follow God for what he did for our souls to be completed in him. I challenge us today. How many of us have blocked God off? I'm not saying that you have to pray with every single person you talk to at work tomorrow. But what I am saying is what does it look like to have eyes that are open? A heart that is open. What does it look like to be aware of what crosses your path? What does it look like to be present to the need of those around you? What does it look like to bear one another's burdens? What does it look like for your life to have the works of righteousness built into it so that proximity can be developed? The second thing is this. You're doing... Your doing can be the great eraser, equalizer, and energizer of fulfillment in Christ. Your faith gets you access to God. Your works develop proximity to God. Faith becomes perfected when works become regularly enacted. Some of us, all of our questions, concerns, fears, and paralysis would dissipate if we just thought less and maybe did a little more. Paralysis is frozen inactivity. If you're active, you're never frozen. You know, think about Rahab. Her past immediately erased by her works. Think about Abraham. Abraham calling re-energized by his works. You know what's fascinating if you actually study the beginning parts of Abraham's journey? is It says that the, the angel calls him out and says, Listen, will you follow me into the land that I will show you? The promised land. Now, here's what's interesting. There's another layer to the promise that is brought about after he almost sacrifices his son. And what I want to say to you today is this. I don't think necessarily God was looking at the action of the knife above the boy and saying, okay, we'll stop this. He was looking at the heart and saying, is he fully committed to doing what I've asked him to do? Now, here's what's interesting, though. Abraham's first part... I'll make your descendants as much as the, sa- the stars in the sky and the sand on the seashore. Seashore. <laughs> but what's also fascinating about it is in the second element, he actually brings this in. And he says, I will make you, give you power over your enemies' gates. The things that surround your enemies, you will be the one who surrounds them. And then it goes into even more blessing. What am I trying to say to you today? See, there was a re-energizing that took place on his calling based off of the level of his devotion and commitment to being obedient in the works 
of God. See, you had, you had Rahab, who her past was erased. You had Abraham, whose future was energized. And for some of us, we don't realize that even the deficiency we run of God, I don't know, or God, I can't sense you, or God, I can't feel you, or God, are you really there? That God would equalize all of those things if we just consistently signed up for doing the work of faith. See, it is one thing to receive the gift of faith, which produces an awareness of God, but it's another thing to take the works of faith, which produce a proximity to God. I say this because in James 1.22, when describing Abraham, what does it say? You see that faith was working with his works, and as a result of his works, faith was perfected. You want a perfected faith? Marry faith and works together in a healthy mannerism that's sustainable, but also in which you are willing to pay a cost and show that you will withhold nothing from him. You know, a couple books, I, I meant to shout these out at the second service. If some of us are in here and we're like, man, I don't even know what godly doing looks like. First off, I just said, practicing the way on Wednesday nights, nine disciplines, shameless plug. Anyway, three books though, Invitation to a Journey, M. Robert Mulholland, Common Rule by Justin Ely, Habits of the Household, also a book by Justin Ely. Incredibly deep and insightful book on how to rhythmically do the works of righteousness that bring about that perfected faith. Like I said, if you're readers, three books, Invitation to a Journey, Common Rule, Habits of the Household. You know, I say this to you today because weekly, for me, I need you to know that my doing is not what I do for this church. And I think that's where there's been even fallout from the pastorate and pastors going wayward is they think that this stage is the doing. Oh, this stage is, is nothing. And I would even say this, we need less people who tr- aspire to be on a stage and more people who d- aspire to lead that quiet life of loving their family, loving their career, lo- building a healthy marriage and showing what it means to be somebody in their career field who follows Jesus. We've, we've sold this bill of goods that if you're not in full-time ministry or if it doesn't look like this, you know what's interesting? In the last 50 years, churches of, of big sizes, they, they never had existed before. And wh- how do you think Christianity went forward? It wasn't because of the church meeting. It was because people took the disciplines of God and formed their life around it. And that is what changed our world and human history. And I say this because I think for some of us, we've, we so have associated Christian and church activity with what doing is and works are, and it's not. I say this because my weekly rhythms of scripture and solitude with God, I don't teach you from, I teach myself from. The work, weekly worship times that I have with the Lord is not just for me to be able to preach better. It is for me to be drink deeply and my soul to be watered so that fruit can come forth. My weekly rhythms of looking for ways to love my neighbors and care for those in difficult seasons and situations is not so I can talk about it on stage. It's so that my faith has legs to stand on. 
my daily times of rhythmically praying multiple times a day is not just for me to say, oh, I pray multiple times a day, even though that does sound a little weird now that I said it, but, but rather for my life to be in constant communion with the Creator. The weekly Sabbath I keep to rest in God both for my work and to sustain my work. The weekly rhythms of generosity in which I attack and assault greed in my heart and the self-centrism our souls crave. See, you don't have to do all these things, but this week I challenge you, what is a a costly work you can undertake to start to wean faith and works together and see some perfect results? My last point for you today is this. If you want work that has worth, it usually involves a cost that will seem extremely difficult to pay. When we will not pay the cost of consistent and costly doing, our spirits wither because our works become dormant and then dead. The crown has a cost required to wear it. Rhythmically dying to self through our doing is a way easier than never doing anything in faith and then God taking you through an unforeseen test to see if our heart and help us pass the test within our being. One of the early words here, if you didn't know our story, me and my wife uh, planted this church um, a little over 13 months ago. It was our first service ever in this sanctuary. We were supposed to take over a really healthy church. All of our family in Michigan was there. It was a very comfortable life, great house, great community. Felt a nudging from the Lord, hey, I, I may be calling you to downtown Phoenix. I'd only been to Phoenix one time, and it was to golf, and here I am. And the golf is still good. Anyway... But I remember going back to Michigan, and I'm, I, for close to a year, I struggled with the decision of if we were supposed to plant this church. And I remember praying to God all the time, trying to get clarity on, like, if I was supposed to support a church here, a ministry here, if we were supposed to do it. And essentially, I felt like the Lord challenged me one day. He said, Micah, you will always be able to place from, preach from a place of knowledge. And that's a great thing to be able to do. He said, but very few people can preach from a place of both knowledge and deep sacrifice. And that is what I'm calling you to. And that's the thing about sacrifice, worth in the world or worth in the eyes of our hearts and our humanity. But we never want to pay any uncomfortable and and cost that we can't see the other side of or we don't want to step out in faith. I challenge you today because I believe that this perfect faith that is the result of faith in works is us coming to the place where we're open daily, weekly, monthly, whatever it looks like, but consistently seeking a heart that would be obedient to paying any cost. Think about a toll booth. How many of us have ran a toll booth? Wow. How many of us have ran a lot of toll booths? My hand's still up. (laughs) How many of us still run Tobos? No, I'm kidding. Maybe, maybe recently. I don't know. But I was thinking about toll booths if you pay for the access that you have by rhythmically stopping and sacrificing a little bit so you could stay going forward. And this is what I think has happened a little bit in kind of this Western American spiritual rhythm of things is instead of stopping periodically and just paying the tolls of self-sacrifice, of character development, of generosity, of submitting ourselves to the word and the will of God, of accountability, of the things that are important for our bypass seasons of life where there's difficult lessons that God wants us to learn. 
bypass conflicted relationships in which God is trying to reveal his character to us in a deeper way. Bypass these, these little sacrifices that are both uncomfortable and a little bit inefficient to where we feel like we want to go. And what we don't realize is this. God tests sacrifice because he just wants to see purity of heart. You know, in the Beatitudes, blessed are the pure in heart for they'll see God. You know what just purity is? A heart that is only focused on him. And I think for a lot of us, if I'm really honest, right, we're bypassing these things and what we don't really realize is every time we bypass character development, every time we bypass self-sacrifice and putting ourselves at the base of what he's called us to do or or trying to, we're saying, God, I want to follow you, but at the same time, I want to follow in my own comfort and in my own timing. And then what happens is this. What happens when you run a ton of tolls? One bill comes. That's a big one. And that bill comes and you remember looking at it, you're like, dang, I thought this was 75 cents. Now it's $75. What happened? You bypassed and delayed and now there's a penalty attached. And I'm not saying God's trying to penalize God because we bypassed all his tests and didn't take any serious. And then he puts us through one that absolutely rattles the knees. And we're like, God, why would you do this to me? God's like, because you wouldn't listen any other way. And the only thing you'll listen to is pain now. You know, the hardest thing about church is when people will only listen to pain. When you get around people and you're not doing the things of God, but man, they're still professing God. And you know what happens is you try and warn them, you try and help them, you hope that the sermons, you hope in worship at some point the spirit gets a hold of them. But at the end of the day, the choices are theirs. You know what the hardest thing is? Is when people you love go through pain. And then they walk away from God. But God, all God wanted, he didn't want to give them pain. He just wanted to see purity. And for a lot of us, the pain that we feel is just God saying, listen, I just want to see a purity of heart and I'm wanting to remove anything that you bow to, to where you only bow to me. See, that's what lordship is. See, that's why we talk about Rahab and that's why we talk about Abraham. It's not because they were a prostitute and it wasn't because it was child sacrifice. It was because they literally put everything they had, the most valuable things on the altar of works, trusting that faith would be perfected through that. I challenge you today to be a Rahab, to be an Abraham, but to believe that your works can produce perfected faith. Stand to your feet. In closing, um, we always take a moment just of solitude and silence in which we just kind of reflect internally and take time in the presence of God and then recite the... Um, I'll lead us in the Lord's Prayer, but I encourage you to just be still and silent. This is a practice, you know, be still and know I'm God. It's kind of the point of it. So I want to encourage you to just take a moment to be.
Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. She give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Lead us 